0: Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise.
1: was beautiful, singing is a precious gift from God. All right, in the first session we looked at three biblical reasons why we do what we do, and I don't want you to come away from those reasons, even though I raised some concerns about what we do with those reasons at times, that they're not good reasons. They are good reasons. They are biblical reasons. There are a lot of other reasons why you do what you do. I didn't mention them because they're not biblical reasons. Some of you are doing it just because your friends do it or just because the church says so or whatever. There's, that's not a biblical reason. Some of you are doing it because you want to fit in. And some of you are doing it because it's how your family wants you to do it. Those are biblical reasons and good reasons. I also hinted at a fourth, and we're going to look at a fourth, but we're not going to look at it now. So if you want to know the fourth reason, you've got to come back tomorrow morning that's final. So you can ask me five times today, but I'm not going to tell you until tomorrow. What I do want to look at, and what I want to do now is just back away for a moment and give structure to what the fourth reason is. And this is now where I want to look at principles. I want to look at eight principles, and I want to tell you right up front that it's not an exhaustive list. There probably would be more. And I believe, though, that these eight will give you structure to build your life. And to build your life in a way that brings honor and glory to God. A principle, as you see there, is a rule or belief governing one's personal behavior. I would describe it this way. A rule is external. I know they have the word rule there. But it's, a principle is something internal. It's a personally held conviction. It's a belief. It's core to who you are. And it will permeate all of your life. Everything you do will be governed by this principle. A rule is something that your parents tell you to do. Or your church tells you to do. Or the Bible might even tell you to do. But it's something external to you. It's not something you've claimed personally. The speed limit on the road is a rule. I suspect many of you, especially young guys, don't have a deeply personal held conviction that would keep you from driving more than 55 miles an hour. Okay, That's the difference. That doesn't mean rules are all bad. doesn't mean rules don't have their place. But a principle is something that you own personally that will govern all of your life. And in that way, it's a tremendously powerful thing. It will become part of your identity as a person. And it will give you purpose in life. Living with purpose has to be principled living. If you're not living by principle, you can't have purpose in life. You're just going to go wherever the wind blows, and that doesn't work. It doesn't bring meaning. It doesn't bring satisfaction. These principles will give you a Christian basis to make decisions. I've addressed with young people at different times the idea or the topic of discerning God's will. And it's one that's important, one that's close to my heart as well. I, I, as a young Christian, struggled a lot with what is God's will for my life. And I know there's probably many of you here in this room that absolutely, with all your heart, want to do what God wants you to do, but what, is, what does God want me to do? And you're not sure what that is. And the point is not this morning about the will of God. I have a friend, now someone else has a friend, Was a ladybug here. The principles, these principles will give you basis to make decisions that will keep you in the will of God. And by the way, the will of God is not a mysterious thing. It's not hard to understand. It's not confusing. And if that's how you feel, I would encourage you to find someone to talk to. Let me just say this, and it might help you understand why I say it's not confusing. The will of God, I shouldn't put numbers on it, but I like numbers. So in my opinion, my belief, not opinion, is that the will of God is 90% about who you are inside and only 10% about the specifics of your life? All right? I've heard of Christians, and I'm not saying this is wrong, and maybe you do this and I don't want to belittle it in any way, but I've heard of Christians going to the shoe store and standing in a row of shoes and praying to God and saying, Which pair of shoes should I buy? That's, if you do that, that's fine. You know what? There's certain kinds of shoes God doesn't want you to buy, but if you're a certain kind of person, you don't want to buy those shoes either. And then God wants you to make a good choice based on who you are, but which shoes you buy. Not stand in a row of shoes and muddle around trying to figure out what the will of God is for whether you should buy these ones or these ones or these ones. And if you have five pairs at home already that work fine, then maybe you shouldn't be in the shoe store and you wouldn't struggle with the will of God. So, that was a little side. It's not the will of God that I'm really talking about. Although these things, these principles, will give you basis, a structure to make those decisions. I want you to know as well that preachers can preach and teachers can teach, but until you make it personal, they will always be external rules. I'm sure you've heard a lot of good messages from this pulpit that have get taught you principles, Okay. But until those principles become a personal thing that you grab a hold of and you live out in your life, they're always going to be external things and they're always going to feel to you like rules. Most people resist rules. That's true. Not just young people, old people too. We have a natural tendency to resist rules. But you know what? The exact same rule when it becomes something that is embraced because there's a principle that I hold inside that gives structure to the rule that I'm hearing on the outside, now that's something that I embrace and I want to do. It no longer feels at all like a rule, and it can be the exact same thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So young people, if you grasp and comprehend and grab a hold of and make these principles personal to your Christian life, you will live life with purpose. I also want to say that we have a very short time together. I start preparing for things like this, and I always feel like this is a lot of time. And then we get started. It goes the same way at Bible school. You get started in a term. Wow, we've got three weeks. What are we going to talk about for three weeks? And then in the last week, it's like, man, I have all these things to talk about. Where am I going to talk about them? We have a lot of ground to cover. A lot of things to say, we're at about 10,000 feet looking at these principles. I don't have time this morning to dig into each one and to pound them into your head, line upon line, you got to get them when I say them once, you got to get it, okay? It's not because they're not there, not because we couldn't look at tons of scriptures that would bring out these principles, but simply because we don't have time. So we're going to move quickly. I want to say this as well, that I want you to engage your minds, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to anyway, not because I've observed anything in this room, but if you got your cell phone in here right now, this would be a great time to just turn it off. You don't need your cell phone for anything we're going to do in the next hour here. And it can be a distraction. I want your minds here, all of your mind. Okay? I want you to think. You see, thoughtful Christians are powerful Christians. And it's unbelievable to me in our culture today, in North American culture, and it's not that much different in Canada than down here, how little we think. We are being trained, and I believe strategically trained. That's another subject for another day. I don't want to talk about that. Strategically trained not to think, just to be zombies. I don't want zombies here this morning. I want you alert and awake, and I want you using your brain. Why? Because everything I'm going to tell you will make sense. And when you grab a hold of it with your own mind, it becomes something you personally engage in and believe. There are so many people today that are stopped thinking. In a day and age where we have Wikipedia and Google for everything under the sun, nobody thinks anymore. They just say, oh, well, I need a fact on this. I'm going to go to Google and get it. If I need to know that, I'm going to go to Google and get it. It's not how it works. I've said already at work, when we interview people and hire people sometimes, there's a big difference between a person who memorizes facts and, with, and a person who comprehends how those facts relate to each other. Thank you. Now, that's a deep statement. I don't know if you followed it with me. But there are many people living today who simply memorize facts. That's all they do. This fact from this verse, that fact from that verse. And you know what happens when all you do is memorize facts? There's times where you pull out the wrong fact for the wrong application. And it makes you look foolish. And it makes other people doubt what you're really saying. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel like you shouldn't do, bring out your facts. Do that. But there's so much more power when you comprehend how the facts relate to each other. We work in some fairly mechanical type situations. And it's always staggering to me how I can explain something to a person over and over and over, and there's a bunch of facts involved in that explanation, and they get you to a result. And then the next time, we can have a little bit different set of circumstances. We need the same facts, but applied, they, they get applied in the wrong order, and the outcome, the, the, whatever they come to their conclusion is completely wrong. Why? Because they don't understand how the facts relate to each other. Young people, if the principles of God's word are simply a bunch of facts to you, you will never bring them to a heart conviction. You will never comprehend them and blend them together to bring out about living with a purpose. So I want you to be thinking this morning. If you're not sure whether we live in a time where people don't think, and this might get me in trouble for even mentioning this, but just look at your political system right now. There is a... A phenomenon, maybe I should call it, happening. His name's Donald Trump. Am I going to get thrown out here? <laughs> what I say next could get me thrown out, maybe. Listen, I don't know much about Donald Trump, and I'm not here to say much about Donald Trump, but he hasn't said a single thing about how or what he would live by, what principles govern and guide his decisions, and yet he's... Leading in the polls, leading the votes, leading in every situation. How does that happen? Why? Because there's a host of people who are angry, who are stirred up, who are emotional, and are not thinking. That's how it happens. It's a very dangerous world. And you know what? It's not only happening out there in the world, it's not only happening in the political system, it's happening in the churches. And that's even scarier. And again, I don't know that this perfectly illustrates it, but I just want you to think about this. When I was a teen, young teen, then the face of, Billy, uh, the face of Christianity would have been Billy Graham, a preacher who preached repentance and turning from sin. Whatever you think about Billy Graham, that was the primary focus of his message, preaching against sin, turn in, from sin to salvation in Jesus. In my young married years and up through to about 30 Who is the face of Christianity? Someone want to take a shot? James Dobson, I would say. A psychologist who is now bringing Christianity and psychology together in many ways. And again, I'm not here to say what about James Dobson. We're not throwing out everything James Dobson has said. But it's a very different approach to the problems of a person than what Billy Graham had. I wonder who you would say is the face of Christianity today. Young people, when you think of Christianity as a whole, who is the most popular, most well known face in Christianity today in, in America? Anyone want to throw out a name? ever heard of Phil Robertson? How many of you heard of the Duck Dynasty? I don't know if that's the face of Christianity today, Willie Robertson, Duck Dynasty. Another very, very different approach to Christianity, isn't it? You know what it is to me? Fascinating. Not fascinating necessarily in a good way, but it illustrates to me how different it is in a culture in a time when people are not thinking. And that's what we're being trained young people to do, not to think. So. You're going to be here with me this morning, and you're going to be thinking. Your brains are turned on, all right? Don't give in to the temptation to stop thinking because you think I'm getting too fast, too many facts, and it just, you zone out, you don't get it anymore. It's my prayer this morning that this teaching will solidify your convictions. I trust that most of you hold these principles already as a governing principle in your life, that they are important to you. But if they're not, I trust that, first of all, you'll be saved. And I was going to mention as well, if I can just back up, I was talking about salvation, and I was talking about how salvation produces peculiar people. It never, ever, ever goes in reverse. You never are a Christian because you're peculiar. Do you understand? You're never a Christian because you're doing the right things. never works that way. Never, ever, ever, all right? Don't ever come away from this weekend thinking that's what I believe. I don't. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But when you are saved, you will change because there's a different power working within you. So if you're not saved here this morning, then all the principles in the world aren't going to help you too much until you get saved, all right? They might protect you in a few ways, but they really aren't going to have any lasting meaning. For each of the principles we're going to look at, we want to follow a similar format. I'm going to give you a few scriptures We're going to look at some of them together, and we're going to look at that principle. Then I'm going to try to define it in my own words. You may agree, you may disagree, you may come up with your own definition, that's okay. I'm going to try to give you some practical examples. I'm going to throw in, sorry, not practical, biblical examples of people who have lived out that principle. I'm going to throw in a few stories along the way. Then I'm going to ask you for your practical applications. And what I mean by that is each principle that we're going to look at doesn't just stay up here at a 10,000-foot level. It comes right down into our daily lives, and it affects what we do and the decisions we make in a very, very real way, and on a broad scale, most of them. They are going to affect a lot of different areas. And when I get finished with giving you the principle and giving you the scriptures and so on, I want you to respond then, I'm going to ask for some feedback on where that principle meets the rubber, if you will, the rubber meets the road of your daily life, where it applies to you whether that's by testimony or observation. It doesn't have to say, you don't have to have a specific instance in your own life in mind. You can share a story from your life if you want. That'd be fine. But I just want to know that you're thinking, that you're getting it, okay? So I want some feedback from you. And I know it's a big group, and about half of you know each other, and the other half know the other half, and so you don't know everyone here. But we're not going to be shy. We're just going to speak up. We'll see how that goes. I also want you to know before we go further, looking at these principles, and we wish we had time to really flush this out, but these principles flow from the very character of God. Okay? God didn't wake up one morning and look down over his creation there after he made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and said, whoa, these guys have way too much freedom. We better come up with some principles to govern how they live. It's not at all how it was. These, these rules for life, if you will, these guiding principles, are not some new idea that God thought up. They are how His children will live because they are His children. Not because He says so, catch this, but because He is so. You understand that? Not because God says this is what you should do, not because God says this is a principle, but because God is so. The all, all the principles I'm going to give you flow out of the very character of who God is. All right, let's look at the first principle. First principle I want to give you is that of love. And the first scripture we're going to look at is in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. I'm going to begin in verse 28. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. You know what's left? Anything anything God missed there that we should love Him with? Our mind, our strength, our soul, our heart? Anything He missed? Any part of your being that hasn't been affected? I don't think so. God wants us to love Him with all we are. The second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. This scribe, this lawyer that came to Jesus, His job was to be a master of the law, to understand the law, and to get a bit of context of what this question is about. The Jewish people at that time had about 600 laws, 600 rules. So you'd want to know which one is most important too, if you've met a good rabbi, which is what Jesus was to this man. Which one is the most important? Which... Which is the one that we need to focus on the most? Like I got these 600 over here and I'm trying to prioritize them and which one comes to the top of the heap? Some of the laws, by the way, were pretty crazy to think about. Here's one of them. They had a law about Sabbath day's journey. I think it was about three and a half miles that you could walk on the Sabbath day. That was it. Any other day you could walk further but on the Sabbath day, that was it. Just three and a half miles. But if you, if you carried your pail from your kitchen on Saturday, carried it out 3.5 or 3.45 miles from your house and set it down there, you could travel anywhere 3.5 miles from that pail because now you had put it out there. If you took your something else from your house and carried it another 3.45 miles from that pail, you could travel 3.5 miles from the second object. That's how silly the rules were getting, and that's why there was so many of them. And what does Jesus say? What is the greatest command? single greatest command for every person in this room, for every person in all time, is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Everything you are, you love God. You won't go far wrong. And then he says the second command is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you love everybody around you. That's a governing principle. In Matthew, in the same account, Jesus said, on these two commands... Hang all the law and the prophets. You know what? All the 600 laws that they had following after, some of them were just not really even scriptural, but they had added them to it. They hung on these two laws. If you love God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't steal, you won't covet, you won't fill in every other blank you will in the law. You won't do it because you love them, because you love God. Second scripture we're going to look at is Romans 13:8. This scripture has been used for a lot of things. Sometimes a little bit out of context in my opinion, but the focus, the emphasis of this verse Romans 13:8 says, "O no man anything, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law." Love is the emphasis of that verse. Love is the focus in that verse. And what he's saying is that you can have other, if you have other debts, you can pay them off. But the debt you have to love others as yourself, you will never pay it off. In other words, you'll love and 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 you'll love, but you still owe just as much love as you did when you started. You can't ever fulfill all the love that you owe mankind. That's the emphasis of the verse, okay? The principle is love. Love and love and love, and when you love, you will fulfill the law of God. The third verse is in first John four. You still thinking? You still with me? First John four. First John four seven says, Beloved, let us love one another. For God, for, sorry, love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. God is love. Love is of God. Everyone that's born of God. In other words, when you're born again, when that new birth happens in your heart, you are going to begin loving people in ways you never knew you could. Why? Because God came into you, and God brought love with him, and love is now flowing out of you. I heard someone share it like this. God first loved us. The Bible says that we loved Him because He first loved us, right? He showed His love when He died on the cross for mankind. And then we have a response love where we love Him back, right? And then that love that came into us from God, from the source of love, that love also flows out to others. And if any of those things aren't happening, if we don't understand the love of God for us, or if we don't respond in love to Him, or if we don't love others, something is very wrong with the person here. Okay, And I want to just look at it because it's in this chapter. The Bible makes clear that these principles affect everyday living. And I want you to look at one here in verse 20 of 1 John 4. It says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's confused, he's mixed up, he doesn't understand it all? No, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God when he, whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that we ought to love. Sorry. Maybe I should think. That he who loveth God love his brother also. In other words, Jesus is saying, through the Bible, that if we don't love fellow man, if we can't love others, if love is not the governing principle that affects our relationship with everyone around us, then we can't say that we love God. We're a liar, okay? You're deceived. If you think you have a relationship with God, a loving relationship with God, and you can't stand A, B, or C, fill in the blank, whoever it is, you're wrong. You're a liar, the Bible says. It's not possible. This love principle that governs our life must flow out to all mankind. Next verse, John 13. John 13. Verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. But this shall by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. When you see a police car and you see a person in an office or in a uniform climb out, you assume that person is a police officer, right? They look like it. Jesus is saying here that when you see someone loving others, that's a sign that they're a Christian. The identifiable characteristic of Christianity, of Christians, is their love for others. That's what sets us apart. And and if that doesn't set you apart from your ungodly neighbors, then you don't understand what love is, okay? It's important that we understand. And maybe we should just look for a moment back at the beginning of this chapter, 13, Jesus is illustrating what it means to love. And we read this scripture over and over again at feet-washing time. It's not, well, it's a feet-washing passage, that's true. But the emphasis is not feet-washing. The emphasis here is at Jesus' tremendous love for his disciples. And if you understand a little bit about what happened here, you have the, the king of the universe, the creator of mankind, Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, now stooping down to wash the disciples' feet. Washing feet was the most pathetic job that anyone could ever have in any household. Not even Jewish people did it. They would let their slaves wash people's feet. They're stinky and dirty from walking around on the dusty roads. No one would do that. And here's Jesus going to wash their feet. And Peter says, whoa, 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 this is backwards. You're never as a high authority going to wash my feet. That, no, can't be. Peter resists. Because Peter didn't understand. You also have Jesus going to wash the feet of the one he knew would deny him, going to wash the feet of the one he knew would betray him. In just a few short hours, Judas was going to betray him by a kiss and send him to the cross. What does Jesus do? Bends down and washes his feet. You know what love is? Love is to serve. What Jesus did there in washing his disciples' feet was an illustration of what love is. The last scripture I want to look at is in Matthew 25. And it's a lengthy passage. I won't take time to read it. I think many of you know it well. It's the account here of where Jesus is shepherding, shepherding. The sheep from the goats, and he says to the sheep and to the goats, he asks them both the same questions, he, or he makes the same statement about them. He says, "For I was a hungered in verse thirty-five, and ye gave me meat; I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink." He's saying this to the sheep. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, and naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, "Lord, when saw we thee in an hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink?" And so on. And Jesus said, when you gave it to a stranger, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. A Christian, what does a Christian do when he sees an opportunity to help another? That's what the emphasis is here. He reaches out and helps another. He doesn't think about, oh, is this Jesus? Might this be Jesus? Oh, I should really serve this person. No, they just serve because they're filled with love. And what's interesting to me is he asks the goats the exact same questions. He says, I was a stranger, I was naked, I was in prison. And the, the, they ask the same question, when? When did we see you as a stranger and naked and so on? But you know what the difference is between the sheep and the goats? The sheep do something about it. Why? Because they're filled with the principle of love. I'm starting to talk faster because I need to. What is love? I want you to know that love is an action word. It involves sacrifice and self denial. Jesus gave his life for the people that he loved. Love is a sacrifice, self denial. It's not primarily a feeling. Love feels good, okay? I'm not trying to say there's no feeling involved in love. But love is not primarily a feeling. It's primarily a decision of the will. And it's primarily an expression of character. Do you understand? No matter where you are and what relationship, no matter how it is in your home or wherever else, love is more an expression of your character than ever is of the other person's worthiness. Okay? It's very little to do with the other person because you know what? If it has to do with the other person, you won't love everyone because there's a lot of miserable people in the world. But if your character, the principle of love, governs what you do in life, you can love those people, not because they deserve it, not because of who they are, but because of who you are in Jesus Christ. Some examples from Scripture. In Luke chapter 10, that's the story of the Good Samaritan. Many would have said at that time there can't be a Good Samaritan. They would have revolted at the Bible to even have a heading that says a parable of the good Samaritan. But there was a person in need who had fallen among thieves at the side of the road and had beaten up and was bloodied and bruised and left there to die. And a priest comes by and the priest had a place to get to. He had to get to the temple and he couldn't have blood on his hands to offer sacrifices. So what did the priest do? He went scooting over to the other side of the road and went on by. And a Levite came along, another religious person. Isn't that interesting? Jesus picks on the religious to make his point. A Levite comes, Levite comes and looks at him, thinks about the singing that he's supposed to do that afternoon at the temple and how long it would take him to get purified again if he was going to get in time there for singing. He never made it, so he couldn't help him. Walks by on the other side. Samaritan comes. The Samaritan was a businessman, we can tell by the way he dealt with it. I'm sure the Samaritan had other things to do than help that man beside the road. What did he do? In love, he stopped. He took care of his needs. He took him to the inn. He paid the innkeeper. He paid the innkeeper even more so that if there was anything more he needed, the innkeeper wouldn't be held back from further helping him. He loved the man in need. It's love. Second example is Jesus, and we could point to every part of his life as an illustration of love, but I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 8. This is one of my favorite illustrations of Jesus' love. It says here, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In that verse 3, is a powerful, powerful illustration of love. And you have to understand a little bit about leprosy to get the picture. Leprosy was an awful disease. It disfigured people. Leprosy is primarily a a loss of feeling, and I'm not a doctor, and there's some studying medicine in this audience probably, so you can correct me all later. Not right now, please. Primarily, you lose feeling in your appendages. And literally, you can be lying sleep at night, and a rat can chew off your finger and you don't feel it. And so what happens? You lose your fingers. You lose your toes. You are disfigured in face. They look awful. They smell awful because there's this rotting flesh all over their body. Their voice gets changed. They look, look kind of like a lion and they talk in an awful, gravelly, raspy voice that sounds terrible. And here comes this man to Jesus Looks horrid. All of us would have went, ugh, like that. Bows down before Jesus and says, If thou wilt thou canst make me clean. You know what Jesus had the power to just say, Be thou clean. He did that many other times. But what did Jesus do? Bible says he reached out and touched him. Said, Be thou clean. That's love in spite of how the person looked and sounded and smelled, Jesus touched him. Jesus on the cross, his ultimate sacrifice. You can't even begin to explain what happened in Jesus' death on the cross. But it's a powerful, powerful illustration of love. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot story from history, 1950s-ish time frame. Many of you will know the story. Jim was a very, very talented young man. Had a great future in front of him. He was a very athletic person. He was a great actor. He was a great speaker. He had everything going for him. In fact, many begged him to abandon his idea to reach out to the Ecuador native people. But he said... Why should I stay here to preach to those who have heard many times, in my own words, when those have never heard? And his passion, his love was for that lost people group in Ecuador, and he wanted to reach them. And finally, all the plans were made and brought together, and he went there, and he finally made contact with the natives. They sat down there, and you know the story there were five of the missionaries, Nate Saint among them, who were speared to death by that Indian group. And we would look at it and we say, what a waste. Talented young man who could have been used powerfully in the church. But he had a love for the people. He was motivated by love. And you know what? The story doesn't end there. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of Jim Elliot, whose husband had been speared to death by that native group, made it her life mission to reach that native group with the gospel. And she did it a powerful illustration of love. I had the privilege of actually sitting in, it's many years ago now, on a service where they were making a presentation. Elizabeth Elliot was there. Some of the men were there. One of the men who had actually speared to death, Jim and Nate Saint. Powerful, powerful example of what love does. share an experience that I had. When I was a young married man, probably about 22-ish, yeah, I was married young. We had a man in our church who had a brain tumor, (coughs) and he was dying, so he was at home on his deathbed. And his family wanted to keep him at home, but they couldn't really give him the care that he needed. So they asked for a number of men from the church to be available to be there overnight. And so I didn't know anything about nursing or anything else, but I thought, well, I can sit with an old man, that's fine. So I, I signed up, and I was there the one night, just a few nights before he passed away. And I was sitting there. It's kind of an eerie feeling, actually, in the same room with a man you know is dying. And you hear his heavy breathing, and his it's... it's it was just kind of unique, creepy for me. But I was there. I didn't sleep much. <clears throat> I listened to him sleep some of the time. In the middle of the night, he woke up, and he was staring around, and I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't, know what, I didn't know anything. Finally, I asked him if he needs something, and he told me he needs the commode. And I, what's a commode? <laughs> Why do we use that word? I don't know what that is. Anyway, it's a toilet for the rest of you, on wheels, I guess. I don't know if a commode is always on wheels or if it's not. So I brought him the toilet, and I'm praying, please, God, not, not number two. Please, just let him pee. But he had to go, and his bowels moved, and he's sitting there. And, I, and then I'm just sitting there, and I'm wondering what's going to happen next. I didn't sign up for this part, I can tell you that. He couldn't physically wipe himself. It was impossible. So yeah, me, 22 years old, learned a lesson about love. You see, love has got to be able to look beyond the circumstances, beyond the dirt, beyond the filth, beyond the corruption in the other person's heart. Love has to govern what you do. So, I hope I didn't spoil anyone's lunch. In what areas in your life does a principle of love affect you or what you do or what you don't do? I'd like to hear from some of you. Come on, you said you were thinking. We're not going to be shy. Mhm. It's good. Thank you. Yep, it's very true. Did you all hear that back there? And when we act out the action of love, the feelings often follow. Anyone else?
0: Love listens to understand how the person can be served. Mm-hmm. Very true. Mhm.
1: Thank you for sharing that so true. You know, you can love and honor people without loving and honoring the bad choices they make possible to do that. Anyone else? Love pushes your little brother on the swing. Love does so many practical things. Mom, mom's work and work and work in your homes. Love helps mom. Love does things for her. You see love when it's a governing principle inside of you will change, will revolutionize who you are. Will revolutionize how you relate to others. It's just the first principle that we're looking at. Let me tell you one other story. I heard of a man, and I've had to think of this often. I travel quite a bit, and you know how it is when you stop to find a bathroom or a restroom or a washroom, whatever you call them in this part of the world, where the commode is, that place. (laughs) (coughs) And you get there, and... It's almost a dread to go in because you know that many of them are a disaster. They don't take care of them. They're dirty, (laughs) filthy places. I heard of a man who felt it was his calling in love to make sure that the restroom, is that the right term? Good with that one? Was a better place when he left than it was when he found it. So if he came into a stall and there was a mess, he'd clean the mess up. And he said, because I don't know who's watching me. And I don't know who came in and saw me go in there and saw me leave and who will follow me. That's love. And you know what? The next time you go in a dronji washroom, you're going to think about that story. I'm going to leave you there for now. Turn it back to Derek.